and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host this evening. With me today is my yellow player, Haley. Hello there. This is episode 23. It's a Wednesday night. And nobody likes you when you're 23. That's also true. This is a board game, tabletop game, RPG card game podcast. We talk about all of those things, our friends, the beer we like to drink while we play, all those sorts of things. Thank you for tuning in to listen. What are we drinking tonight, Delton? The first beer, we're going to go ahead and crack into the beer today. Because it's been a long ass day. It really has been a long day today. Work felt so slow and it just drug by. It was really annoying. This is from Scarlet Lane Brewing Company. It is Laughing Water Australian Sparkling Ale. It's from McCordsville, Indiana. We picked this up at Gen Con. Or at least on our trip. It's the last of the Gen Con beers. It is the very last of the beers we got at Gen Con. Which we got a lot of beers at Gen Con, but not a lot of them made it home from Gen Con. So we're lucky to have this one a month and a half back. That's true. I'm surprised it stayed around for this long. Believe me, I was tempted a few times. I've been to a couple of bachelorette parties since then. Yeah, you best be giving me more beer. You best be finishing that bottle in a year glass. Last time, I got all the little orange peely rindy thingies in my glass and it tastes like dirt. Wasn't last time, that was a while ago. I still remember it like it was last time. It was a while ago. Like it was yesterday, it was that traumatic. Haley is the drama person this evening, apparently, on the podcast. (laughs) Always. So this Laughing Water Australian Sparkling Ale comes in at 5.2% alcohol by volume. I'm trying to see if it says, there we go. It says, Conjuring Your Inner Laughter. With pride of ringwood hops and Australian yeast, the sparkling ale is designed to quench your thirst and keep your spirits high. Native to Australia, the sparkling ale has a mild malty sweetness, low bitterness, and a unique yeast character, perfect for the hot weather and dancing around the fire. I don't know that that's true, but we're going to give it a shot and find out. Prost! To cats. Uh, To beer. I just want to drink it. I don't care. It's nice and light. It's a little thicker than I expected, but it's not too thick, not on like a stout or a porter side. I feel like I'm drinking fermented blueberries. Like it has the taste that blueberries would have if blueberries weren't sweet. I don't know about that reach of a descriptor, but it's, uh, it's good so far. It's definitely light. My palate is exquisite. Exquisitely untrained. Maybe. I I got an A in wine tasting. We've talked about this. It's because you poured the wine for the professor. That's all. And because I can BS. So this tastes like unsweetened blueberries. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone at home knows now you're just a big BSer. Made it so far. She's full of it, folks. Have you met my father? That's true. We spent the weekend this past weekend at Haley's parents' house. Even though their hot water tank had flooded, they had fans running everywhere in the home, like six or seven fans just moving air, trying to get rid of the moisture. But we spent the weekend with them, hanging out, having a few drinks, playing some games, things like that. And it was a good time. It was fun. We also got a lot of family dirt. What family dirt this time? We sat with Grandma Joyce and Papa Floyd, and we heard all the stories about the one time Grandma got so drunk at a church function that they rolled her out and basically mopped the floor with her, literally. That's true. Your grandmas are both crazy for different reasons. Very different reasons. I talked about my romance novel collection, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so update on that story. For you all who don't know or who for some reason are tuning in to this podcast for the first time on episode 23, 
About three years ago, my grandma gave me a Brahms sack full of cowboy erotica novels, and I got rid of them because I don't need that kind of negative energy in my life, yo. Not your grandma's used cowboy erotica novels. And she has been bugging me about returning them via phone. And this week, I go up to see my grandma. I lay my hands out to grab her hand and give her a hug. And she stares at me in the eye. And the first thing out of her mouth was, Do you have my books? And I said, No, ma'am, I forgot them. And that was it. That was the only conversation my grandma had with me for the rest of the day was how I forgot her cowboy erotica romance novels. To be fair, she didn't say she was lending them to you. No, she's like, here's a bag of books. Yeah, and then we go through them and they're all just garbage, smut, guys on a horse. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. That's it. That's the bag. Shirtless guys on a horse. Shirtless guys on a horse that have more muscles than they know what to do with. And they also wear cowboy hats. Here's the thing. I grew up in (laughs) western Oklahoma, so there's a lot of western heritage that goes on there. The Butler Brothers, when the Butler Brothers Rodeo originated out there, which a lot of their bulls are in the PBR to this day. And there's the, in Oklahoma, there's the Cowboy Western Hall of Fame. Like, we're in a cowboy area, right? The uh, part of the Great Western Trail is right there. It runs right through us, goes through Elk City, all that fun stuff. Here's the thing. I have never in my life seen a cowboy that looks anything like those romance novel covers. The only cowboys you see out here are those who are wearing a grease-stained shirt with a couple of holes in the armpit, Delton. And you can see at their belly button, if they look down at their work boots. If they move their chin just right, their shirt goes up and you can see their belly button. First of all, my holy shirts are because I've worn them for too long, not because I'm working in a field. So let's clear that up. I don't ride horses. Your is showing. I've ridden a horse once, and it was terrifying. His name was Earl, and he was very slow, but it was still terrifying. But yes, the cowboys around here are not what you see in movies, for the most part. Also, I think you can start to argue the definition of the term cowboy, and if there are, are even any real cowboys left anymore, I feel like now it's just farmers. But farmers are better anyway. Why? Because unlike the cowboys in those romance novels who just seem to collect their inheritance and find mysterious young teachers or secretaries or lawyers' assistants or stay-at-home moms as their love interests, farmers actually do work and make food. And I like food. They actually do productive things with their lives, unlike the cowboys in every movie. Every romance novel. It's like they're a cow- they wear a hat and they have a horse named Carlsbad. And like <laughs> And that's the extension of their cowboyness. Okay, Carlsbad would be an awesome name for like a cat, but Definitely a romance novel horse name. Yeah. Carlsbad or Shadow. I feel like Shadow's what every little kid wants to name their black cat. Why are you going all cats on all my horse names, man? Because horses terrify me. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of cats, the cats tried to knock over our game about 30 times tonight. We want to talk about that. They kept trying to jump on the table, chasing each other, jumping on the table, kicking stuff around. And it's the most annoying thing you could possibly have happen ever. Especially when parts of the game actually depend on where pieces sit. And if those get moved around, it's going to screw up everything. Oh, here's the door. Uh, uh. It's straight ahead. It's it's a game. So to get onto this game for the episode, we are talking about Coimbra, which we played and picked up at Gen Con this year, 2018. 
Coimbra is designed by Virginio Gigli and Flaminia Brassini. It is published by Egertspiele out of Germany and brought over to the U.S. through Plan B Games. Art direction is Philippa Guerin. Now, that name sounds so familiar, and I want to say Azul is Philippa Guerin. And the illustrations by Chris Quilliams, I believe, is also Azul. I don't know that for 100%, but I believe that is correct, because those names sound extremely, extremely familiar. Uh, the graphic design, Philippa Guerin, Carla Ron, and Marie-Yves Jolly. And I think that goes through the credits for the most part, aside from producers and editors and revisioners and communications and stuff like that. Coimbra is named after a city in Portugal, which, as you know, Portugal is the small country on the north side of Spain. West side. On the west side? Mm-hmm. Northwest side or just west side? Because Portugal's kind of, it's got a, doesn't Portugal have a north and a west border against the ocean? Yes. Okay, so it's on the west? Yeah. Coimbra's on the west side. I'm learning geography every day. You're getting better. You're doing good. I'm getting there. I'll get there one of these days. So Coimbra, I wanted to try at Gen Con and demo it. Luckily, we got into a demo, which we'll give a shout out to John and Joe, the two guys that we played Coimbra with. Extremely nice guys. We've added them on Facebook and stuff and follow them and they follow the podcast and all that. So I just wanted to say a shout out to them because they were awesome to play with and good sports and no issues, which is good for a giant convention. Yeah, they're really nice. Hi, guys. And they both beat me at the game. Bye, guys. <laughs> we saw both of them a second time as well in that convention, which is funny. Yeah, it really was out of that huge convention. Yes. So Coimbra is essentially a dice placement game. The way it works is Coimbra takes place over four different rounds. Each of those rounds is broken up into sections or phases. So you go through A, B, C, D, E, F, then you start the next round. So what happens is the first player rolls the dice. There is going to be, depending on the number of players, depends on the number of dice. But in a four-player game, you will have three gray, three green, three purple, three orange, and one white. The way it's going to work is you roll those dice. Then in player order, each person is going to take one of those die, draft it at the face value that it was rolled, place it into this little, uh, it's kind of like a, just a little holder for your dice. You set the die uh, into one of the holders and it shows your color. So if you're the black player, yellow player, it's easy to identify which die you drafted. So you take a die, you put it in your little die holder, and then you place it in one of four areas on the board. Now on the left side of the board, there are these four areas, which is the castle, and then three different sections of the city. Placing it in one of those gives you, depending on the value, an order in which you will be able to purchase a card. The castle at the top has four different tokens that have pretty strong abilities on them. The way you place your dice there is lowest value to the left, highest value to the right. If you're ever tied, you get placed on the right side, so you have the um, disadvantageous position. Now, the next three parts of the city are going to be the opposite. The higher value goes to the left, which means you will pay more, but you get to choose first, and the lower values or ties go to the right. So if you have a five green, you can place it on, let's say, the castle spot. You have a five green. If someone takes a two orange and places it on the castle, it will go to the left of yours because it was a lower value, and they will be able to take a piece first before you can. Now, on the city spaces, let's say you do the third bottom city space and you placed your green four on there, and somebody places a orange two, then you will go first because you're paying more for the chance to 
grab a card first, where they will have to go after any before them. So the order does matter. What is neat too is the value of that die determines how much you are going to spend. What you spend, whether it's gold or guards, which are a shield icon, are determined by the cards you're actually purchasing. So the first thing is all the dice are rolled. The second one is everybody places out their die uh, with their little markers underneath them, whatever those little uh, slots are called you put your die in. You place those out and get the orders all lined up and ready. Then in the C phase, you will pick up the die. You're going to start with the castle at the top and go top to bottom, left to right. So at the castle, you'll do the leftmost die. So whoever owns it will take it, pick their tile, and resolve the actions. The next die in order, you resolve those actions. Then you go down to the first of the three city locations. You do the highest value, which will be on the left. You take it. Somebody pays, picks the card that they want, uh, what they've paid for, does the actions, does all that kind of stuff, and then the next person in order goes. So you'll do that. You'll take all three of your die for every player. Once everybody has all of those, you then figure out the new player order. Then in that new player order, everybody receives an income. So one of the things that matters in this game for strategic planning is there are four tracks. There is a gray track, which corresponds to guards. Orange corresponds to gold. The purple corresponds to monks on the board, which is uh, they move around and uh, activate bonuses. Pilgrimage. It's pilgrimage, yes. And then the green track, which corresponds directly to points. The cards you're purchasing are of those four colors. So black, orange, purple, green. When you purchase one of those cards in the C phase, those cards then allow you to move up these tracks, which every section of three numbers up the track gives you a higher benefit. If you're on number one, two, and three in the first section, you can get like two points. But if you're in the four, five, and six section, instead of two points, that could be four points. And it goes up for each of those, whether it's more guards you're earning, which is a currency, like gold you're earning, which is a currency, more pilgrimage movement, which can get you multiple different things and bonuses for the end of the game, uh, immediate bonuses, things like that. And then the green track, which is all points. You take your income. There are cards that have a notation of something happening in the E phase, as well as the C phase when you buy cards. But in the E phase, they allow you to modify the track a little bit, maybe by going up it, giving you some more money. Then this is what's kind of weird. So the dice that you rolled, the value not only determined when you got to purchase a card, it also determined how much you paid for that card. Now those dice that you have drafted are going to determine which of those four tracks you receive your income from. So if you drafted two of the orange dice, you will take your money value, which is determined by how high on the orange track you are, two times during that income phase. If you had the white dice, a gray dice, or black dice, whichever one you want to look at, and the purple dice, then the white one can be any of them. The purple one would give you the value you were marked at on the movement pilgrimage track to go move around the board. And then the black dice would give you that many guards, which are those shield tokens, that currency. So the dice are going to matter which color you get matters, what value you get matters, and where you place it matters. And so it's this really big struggle back and forth where you're trying to, to determine, do I want to go first? Do I want to pay less but risk going second? If so, can I still get this card? which makes me not be able to go up this track, which makes me not be able to receive this much income due to this other die that I put on, you know, the castle at the top to try to get one of those tokens and this and that. So there's a lot of decision making and a lot of consequences uh, or rewards that come with which die color you choose. 
and just which dice you take in general. So once you get those, you take your income from those tracks. You can then go on a, what they call going on a voyage. You can spend some money for an end game goal. So, you know, the total number of orange cards you have, every orange card is worth two points. So you add up your number of orange cards times two, and that's your points. You can then choose to opt into that as something you will score at the end by spending either cards or the gold. So in a roundabout way, that's the whole game. You're going to be doing this, taking cards that give you benefits, cards that have requirements, cards that you have to spend coin to earn points, or, you know, for every two green cards at the end of the game, you get so many points, or for every collection of this, you get that. There are scripts in the game. I can't think of what their actual name is, like a scroll. There's five different colors. If you get a set, it's worth 12. If you get four of them, it's worth eight. I think it's diplomas. I think it's diplomas. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so there's a couple different scoring things. The scoring actually takes a second, but all in all, it's pretty simple. I know it sounds pretty complex by what I'm saying, but what I like about it so far is that every single time you draft one of those dice, whichever die that is matters not only the value of it and the color of it and where you place it, but it just everything mixes together. I just like that that's worth more than just one single usage. I think that goes through the explanation decently well for a kind of quick-winded explanation. Man, that was a that was a in-depth description there. That was really good though. I tried to do it quickly and not too not too loosely, but also get through it and try to reference things, but I mean, obviously I can't teach you how to play the game from here. That's just not going to work. But it's something I wanted to do at least kind of get an idea for. Okay, you're going to take a die, you're going to place it somewhere, you're going to buy from one of the four cards, this and that. Yeah, I think it was really good and it was a really good depiction of what the game entails. Uh, what? That's just, I'm out of breath. <laughs> to talk about what we, how we played it tonight? We can. So tonight, it only took us an hour, which is awesome. We played it at Gen Con, and we haven't played it in a while. And so we decided to play it tonight to make sure we were fresh on it for this recording, because as you heard, there's uh, multiple facets to the game and how it's played and all that kind of stuff. Something crazy that happened tonight was that Haley had absolutely no strategy, didn't know what she was doing, and just went into it going... Didn't know what I was doing. What are you talking about? She didn't have a plan for what she was doing. And nearly doubled my score, and I could not comprehend how she did it, because I was trying to look for her strategy. Like, all right, what's she doing? Well, uh, she did something different. I don't... What's going... How is it? Uh, And then she just rolled me, and it it, it feels bad, man. (laughs) What was it, like 154 to 93? 152 to 91. Oh, that's probably worse, but I don't remember what you just said. It's okay. Yay. Haley rolled me. She did very, very well. I don't know what her strategy was, and apparently neither does she. I just play the game. Like, I take the. <laughs> oh, I don't have this. What's like... the most douchey thing to say? <laughs> oh, really? I don't have, like, you always. So, Delton narrates his board game play. So, we always know what Delton's strategy is, always. And I just. Never really have a strategy. I just kind of play. I'm like, oh, this looks like a smart choice. I'm going to make smart choices here. Woo, I made a smart choice because I won. I'm going to crack this beer because I need it now. <laughs> Split it. This is Left Hand Brewing Company's Brewer's Test Kitchen. It is a Blackberry IPA coming in at 6.4% alcohol by volume and 50 IBU, which is the International Bittering Unit. I just don't know why Delton gets so salty when I win like that. So Haley doesn't seem to understand my saltiness, which is fine, and I shouldn't get so upset by these kinds of losses, even though I do. This is definitely a character flaw. There's nothing I can change about it, and I don't feel like changing it. But 
It comes down to I come into the game with a strategy in mind. I come into playing based off the cards I start with. You start with two with something that I want to go for. I say, okay, here's my two cards I've got. Uh, Here's the first set of cards that are able to be purchased. I'm going to go for this and this, and that's my strategy, and I'm going to push my way toward that. In Coimbra, you will see every single card in the game during the game. There is cards that are starter only, so I guess you won't see some of those in a two-player game or a three. But then there are cards in the... uh, I get I don't know if it's age. They're they're numbered one, two, and three. There's the one number cards, which are starter, the two numbered cards, and then the numbered three cards. So they are separate, and you will see the twos before the threes, but you're always gonna see the same cards. So you can at least know the cards you want are coming. This will definitely reward multiple plays because you can learn the cards. But I knew a strategy I wanted to go into it with. But I was also trying to read Haley's strategy, which was her just doing what she felt was the right thing, and she never actually pushed for one overarching strategy, and I couldn't figure it out, and it just drives me nuts because I go into it planning and trying to do my best and trying to play for the long game, and then she's just like, oh, this card's pretty, yay, and then she beats me. That's ex- Oh, yes, that's exactly what my thought process exactly is. exactly what your thought process is. I don't know why you try to look for my strategy as part of your strategy. We've talked about this before. I don't really have a strategy. Just Jesus take the wheel. This beer's okay. Have you tried it yet? I have. I had three of them on the bachelorette party trip. Of these ones? Yeah. How do you like them? Eh, fine. Blackberry IPA from left hand. Meh. It's all right. It's not much of an IPA, really. It's not too hoppy at all. And I don't think the blackberry flavor does it any any good. Tastes kind of flat. It's kind of like you take one of those Mios or Mio like water flavor thingies and just squirted it into the beer. And we're like, there we go, Blackberry. Yeah, like the sugar-free ones or no sugar added ones. Yeah, so it's okay. Nothing really to write home about on that one. But so that's the thing with Coimbra with Haley. Uh, She just goes for what she sees as the better play. And I guess I should probably start doing the same if I'm ever going to compete with her ever. But that's why I get so frustrated. Anyway, back to actually the game a little bit. I really enjoy the decision making of this game. Even though you're rolling some dice in the beginning of every round, those dice values you can then work with. And you have to choose not based on the board, really, but based on your opponents. What do you think they're going to go for? In a two and three player game, there are some blockers on those city spaces that I was talking about where you place your dice. So on the top city space, that's not the castle, the one under that, they have a three and a two, which means there's already as if there's a three value die and a two value die and then underneath that one i believe it's a four and a five no sorry a three and a four and then under that there's a five and so it kind of has dice already on the board that way they will eliminate cards that are purchasable unless you put a die that's higher value than that so it kind of limits the game for two or three people um making it a little tighter and it makes it a little easier to calculate what's going to happen because they eliminate cards in a certain manner, where if a player comes in and is ahead of you in the row of dice, then you don't know what they're going to buy. And so this kind of limits it. But I enjoy the decision-making there, where the color of the die matters, the value of all those dice matter in what you're purchasing, and then the different cards that come out in the different rows. It just makes it nice because you always have something to think about. And even if your strategy is like, all right, I got it. Well, then it's like, well, is this enough? Can I use that six? Do I have to use the six? Then you're like, crap, I don't have enough gold to buy that card at six value for gold. So maybe if I use this four value and hope no one puts the six there, I can get that card. Or if they put the six there and then this this whole thing just keeps going. 
So there's a lot of strategic play and a lot of decision making that I really enjoy about it. You know what I like about it? What? Diversity. Explain. So in this game, there are not only male and female characters throughout, but the female characters actually have different hairstyles, different body types, and are different ages. I know that sounds like something silly to be excited about, but you guys, you have to look at board games in general. So few, A, have women, and B, if they do have women, it's like a woman, and if they have more than one woman, all the women look alike, and it's all the same body type, and the same age, and the same skin color, and the same hair color. But this game, it is women across the age spectrum, against the hairdo spectrum, body type, all that fun stuff. But look at the cover of the box. It is probably a 30-year-old male yep. and like a 70-year-old female on the cover of the box. Yeah, so that's really what? nice. That's really nice that they... How will that sell? Oh, my God. So that's really nice that they put in the effort and the time, which really it's not that much extra of effort or time. It's just doing it. It's nice that they did it. How did this sell out at Gen Con with an old woman and a 30-year-old man on the cover of the box? Oh, must be a fluke. I'll tell you how. It's a good game. And that's also helpful. <laughs> but it's a fun game. We've, we've really liked it. The track system. And uh, I was explaining how you go up those tracks when you buy cards. You know, it pushes you up the track. So your green track, you can go from value one to two. In a two-player game, if you are further down the track, more than three spaces from your opponent, you will not get the second place score on that track. So what happens is at the end of the game, those tracks, whoever's the highest up gets a certain score. Whoever's second highest gets another like amount of points. And in a two-player game, you have to be within three spaces of that person, like three or less spaces, to be able to get the second place score. And Haley pulled out three of those tracks ahead of me by one, so I couldn't catch up. But that's the only thing that changes with two, and that makes it like a little tighter on being more diverse, and maybe that was part of my problem. But um, that's a change. I think this game's best with four because that's not in there. There's not already predetermined dice on the board. It's all based on what the players are doing and you're focusing on the players versus more of the board. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. See, nothing against those that we played this with. I just think it was more fun as two player. But also we had less analysis paralysis with the two player. And so I felt like it more, moved a little more smoothly because this game, you are prone to analysis paralysis if you play this game. Definitely. I think it is going to be a lot slower with four, and it was slower. We play, played in probably an hour and a half, hour 45, and me and Haley did it in just an hour, and this was our first play since Gen Con. So I think it w does move quicker at two, uh, but I think it will be a better experience all around at four, but I still had a lot of fun with it at two, and will definitely keep playing it at two and three and four. All of it. So it's really good. Is there any other big points you want to point out about Coimbra, pros or cons? I don't think so. I really enjoy the game. I think it's really fun. It looks a little more complex than what it is, which I think brings us to our topic. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So, our topic for the evening is newbies versus veterans. What is gatekeeping? So we wanted to talk about gatekeeping a bit because this game really made us think about that some in the way that we are still actually gatekeepers. So what a gatekeeper is is someone who's preventing you from going through the gate. It makes sense, right? It's like a guard to the door. 
The problem is gatekeeping tends to come across as people preventing others from enjoying something. Gatekeeping in the negative term is being used for something you hear a lot. And I heard this day one of Gen Con, which is why I was annoyed by it, is when somebody references filthy casuals. For some reason, it's an idea, and this is big in the video game world, that someone who's a casual player, who plays games for fun, who doesn't go in ranked games and doesn't try to be the best in the world, for some reason, they're not a real player because they don't spend as much time as you do. They're not a real player because they like introductory board games or uh, gateway board games versus big, heavy, long games. They're not a real player because they've never played chess, but they really love checkers. It's a way for people to put down others because they think their nerdiness is better. And it's really annoying. Right. Kind of ironic, too. It is kind of ironic. But we find that we kind of have a version of gatekeeping ourselves that we definitely do. I I don't think it's as bad as that, but it's something that we need to be more aware of. Do you want to explain it some? Yes. So... Whenever you're introducing somebody to a board game, you always want to find a game that you think they will like, whether that is the theme or the mechanics. Like if I have someone who's never played board games before, I'm going to try and choose one of the board games on our shelves that most matches their interests. I think Delt and I are both guilty of this, where we just assume that new players or people we haven't played with before are less experienced and thus less likely to enjoy the harder board games. So take, for example, our friend Allison. I mean, Delt and I have had this conversation multiple times. Allison is a great board game player. But for some reason, whenever we first started playing with Allison, there was this fear of introducing something that was, quote unquote, too complex for a new player. Even though we know now she could more than handle it and she actually kicked our asses at Lancaster a while back. But there was this automatic response that, oh, she's new to board gaming, even though she's been playing with us for like two years now. She's new to board gaming. And therefore, she won't like this game, so we just probably better not even introduce it to her. Yeah, and that that can manifest itself as well in, you know, oh, they like Ticket to Ride, they like the simplicity of it, they're not going to enjoy a complex game, they're not going to like all these rules, or they're not going to like, you know, the way this functions. And that can lead to whenever you guys are sitting down for a game night and that one friend's there, oh, we can play this, but I think it might be a little much for tonight. And that person never gets to play it. I feel like sometimes when I talk about the length of a game, like, no, it's too long for tonight. I feel like sometimes I get the skeptical eye as if this is what I'm doing. Because, you know, some games take, if a game takes an hour and a half, I have to set it up and I have to teach it, which is at least 30 minutes. So it starts to really extend the time. And then with a newer player, a lot of times, making sure that it's understood and all the actions are fine and making sure that I'm there to, like, uh, be the rule book person, right. you know. Well, sometimes that is a valid reason like okay y'all it's, yes. it's too late that can it's be in- 2 a.m i am not going to teach you twilight struggle yeah that can be interpreted uh negatively but we we do have the problem of doing that of what do you want to play well how about this one's like well i don't know that you're gonna like that one where it's a more complex game but in all reality it's more like we just need to give it a shot we need to at least teach it and then after the teaching's done say okay do you want to continue playing do you want to give this a shot or after seeing how it's played Are you now like, okay, never mind, I don't want to? Because I think I read something online today, I think on Reddit, about how people need an out. If they say they want to play something and you get through the teaching, give them the option of, you don't have to play. I can sit and coach you. We can just get to another game, that kind of thing. And it's something we should probably start doing with different sets of friends. Anytime we get together, like, here's this game. Here's how it's taught. Here, I'll show you. I'll teach you the game. Boom, boom, boom. Do you want to play this now? 
I agree. And that way you give them the option to play. And if they got it, they got it. But I think we, and me included, we sometimes make assumptions that people won't like board games. And that kind of is almost snooty in a way. Yeah, we know more board games than probably the average bear. But the average bear doesn't have a board game podcast or is sitting in front of 200 board games right now. Delton. I don't have 200. Thank you. Uh, But at the same time, we assuming that someone else isn't going to have the same interest or even the same capacity sometimes to grasp a board game is in a way gatekeeping. And I want to kind of give an example of us going to Elk City this weekend. Do you want to start? Sure. So this weekend, as we talked about, we went to Haley's parents' house. We always take games uh, to Haley's parents' house and we always try to choose games that are light, that are really easy on the rules, usually not too thinky, and something that we know that her mom can uh, get through with no problem because she usually we usually have drinks, and so that's always you know adding to everything. And then potentially something maybe her dad will play with us because he doesn't really like to play games too much, so that's always tough. So we always try to bring lighter games or games we think they'll enjoy. So like so for example, this weekend we brought that's not lemonade from Tuesday Night Games. And we played several rounds of that with Haley's parents and sister because it's really light. It's really simple. You know, it's hit or pass, basically. And then you keep going and it's a good time. Everybody enjoys it. We actually ended up playing Azul, which I wasn't sure her parents were going to enjoy. And at least her mom enjoyed it. Her dad thought it was all right. Mom won the thing. Yeah, her mom won it by quite a bit, which is really awesome. Even Azul seemed like it would be something she wouldn't like. But that's mostly on how verbal she is about complexity. I feel like your mom's very verbal about, oh, that seems too hard. Oh, this seems too complicated. But I don't think she gives herself enough credit. Right. And we kind of take that as, okay, she doesn't want to play these things. Yeah. Or she just won't be able to handle it. And so when we introduce Muse, I'm, Del, do you want to talk about Muse? I know we talked about it on the podcast before. We kind of give them like, the Cliff Notes version. So Muse, you take six cards, pick one of them, which is a photo. You take two clue cards, basically, pick one of them, which is like name a bug. You have to give that clue and that photo to the leader of the other team. That leader has to give a clue that has to be name a bug and try to give their team a clue that's good enough to get them to pick that card out of six without seeing the other six. So if it's a card of a tree and it says pick a bug, you can say a leaf bug or I don't know, a cottonwood beetle, if anybody knows what that is aside from us. Yeah. And then. They would lay out all six cards and hope her team with the clue Cottonwood Beetle would be able to guess that card of the six. So kind of a party game, a little bit of like art interpretation, cards like Mysterium or Dixit style with some funky art, you know, nice and simple party game. But I had packed that for Delt and I to have just a quick game whenever we were bored in Elk City or something was going down. Mom and dad were working. We just wanted to pass the time. But we dumped our game bag out and we'd already had a few drinks by then. Mom had had a lot of drinks by then. A lot of drinks by then. And mom saw Muse and she's like, I want to play that. And we're like, well, this might be hard to teach you. We've been drinking a little bit. It's late. Mom's like, no, I want to play all the games you brought. And we're like, oh, man, this is going to end in a disaster. Well, guess what happened? Mom and dad, both mom and dad, fell in love with the game so much that it is 1230 in the morning. They had both worked a whole day and they asked to play it again. So we played it again. We played that game until 130, 145 in the morning. They loved it so much. And we could have missed out that opportunity because we were like, We didn't give them enough credit. We were trying to gatekeep them from that experience because we assumed that being that the game wasn't Taboo or Uno or Monopoly, that they weren't going to get it or enjoy it. Yeah, that's very true. And they did. They liked it a lot. And it's just one of those things where if someone says they want to play something, at least teach it to them. And that's going to be 
a catalyst for them to either want to play it again, or it's going to be an inhibitor and tell them, okay, I don't want to play this. Let's find something different. I, you know, sorry, I wasted your time teaching. And we'll be like, no, it's not a waste of time. It's fine. And that's going to be the conversation. It's not a big deal, but you don't want to prevent people from finding games they love just because you think they're not going to like it. Right. And so something like Coimbra, for example, it looks complex. The rule book looks complex at first glance, too. But it's really an easy game. And so when I was thinking about my experience with my parents this weekend and we were thinking about Coimbra, I think Allison's asked to play Coimbra before and we've never played it with her. We probably haven't, no. And so, you know, in a way, we've probably been gatekeeping Allison for various reasons. So, Allison, we're going to play Coimbra next time you come over for game night. I guess our our real quick shout out, uh, Allison is a Patreon backer of our level that we shout her out on the podcast. So, hello, Allison. Shout out to you. Thank you again for backing us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Games. Thank you, Allison. We love you. But gatekeeping is something we want to avoid. And if we can get more friends into more games, that is always main thing you want to do if you can get your drunk mother into more games that's what you want to do exactly and even if that means your friend saying you know there's mage knight i want to learn to play mage knight teach me let's play mage knight and you've got to bust that game out and spend four hours going through the rule book just to teach it and then to say (laughs) (laughs) just do it i mean what's it gonna hurt what's one evening even if all you did in the evening was teach six or seven games for them all to be shot down is that really going to hurt you in the long run? Isn't that more of you finding out what your friends enjoy or what your friends dislike and being able to go from there and find the games you will play and then maybe the next evening you play six or seven games they absolutely love because you now know what they don't want to do? It's a positive. You just have to give people a shot, let people give games a shot, let them pick it, let them find it, and as long as you have time and the games you know within that time limit, go for it. I think that's the big thing that needs to be done. Seconded. I think that's how we fix our gatekeeping problem. I do too. Just giving people a chance to love games. And now, join us for a Malt House Games podcast special, Pint Size Question. We decided that our question for the episode is going to be, how are you, personally, going to keep yourself from gatekeeping others in the future? Do you want to go first? Sure. I think for me... The best way now, I feel like I mainly have a gatekeeping problem with Allison. I feel like I don't really with Brian or like Mac and Cass. I feel like I mainly for some reason have it with Allison. I don't know if it's just she only comes over during the weekdays, but I think what I need to do is tell Allison, okay, pick like three games that you want to try and then we'll schedule a day with plenty of time for me to teach these and play them. And then we just do it. No matter how complicated they are, no matter how much time they're going to take, just pick those games. Boom. Let's do it. And that's it. So I think that's I think that's the best way to approach it is just make sure there's time set aside for quality time spent playing, learning, teaching games, enjoying and enjoying those games. Yes, I think that's a great idea, Honeybun. What about yours? Next time mom and dad come up, I'm going to take mom back here and ask her to pick out a game. Because normally I come in from the back bedroom with an armful of games, bring them to the dining room where she's already sitting drinking her wine, and we just bust them out. But I want to have mom pick out a couple. Is it bad I immediately like get slightly cringy thinking about like trying to teach your mom key flower? Well, we can like give her a rundown. Like, or like well, twa? Mom, that one's going to take about two hours. We can play it, but you can't eat potato chips while you do it or else Delton's going to have a panic attack. That's no potato chips around any of my games, thank you. 
like Jesus. Isn't that just a rule that everyone knows? That's you don't eat greasy things on other people's expensive board games because they spent money on them. Well, people are used to buying the $17 board games at Walmart, Delton. I know, that's a good point. Eh, it's an expensive hobby. But that makes sense. I think that's, I think that's another good one. So we're going to change the world. High five. Uh, high five. Yeah, high five. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. So I think that wraps this episode up now with a nice, pretty little bow, hopefully, on top. Thank you for tuning in to the Malthouse Games podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to us on YouTube. Make sure to like this podcast. Give us a nice review on iTunes. Always helps us out, definitely. Please, and carrots. Email us, contact at malthousegames.com, which, by the way, nobody submitted for the welcome to names. I thought Ben was going to because he had commented on the YouTube for a list of the names and of the people in the places. Come on, Ben. So as of right now, nobody has submitted those names. So we will keep this open until somebody finally wants to. It's on episode 22. You can look at it, listen to it. It's a little contest kind of thing just for a shout out on the podcast. Nothing fancy. But aside from that, I think that wraps everything up nicely. We are going to go to bed. Haley's over here literally falling asleep while we're trying to record. I'm also very tired. It is 1039 at night, my friends. 1039 at night, and we've had not much sleep in the past, like, four or five nights. So I think we're going to go on to bed. We will see you guys next time. So until then, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you guys next time. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye.